I don't even know how we're gonna do this. This is Elisa. <laughs> this is Kyle. I mean, you don't have to sing it. <laughs> Welcome to PCR. <laughs> Welcome to PCR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to PCR, the podcast of UConn Research. I'm Elisa White. And I'm Kyle Drake. And this is episode three. Today, we'll be talking to UConn's provost, Dr. Jeremy Teitelbaum. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Happy to be here. Awesome. So we're going to just get right into it. So coming from Carleton College, a small liberal arts school, did you ever envision yourself being the provost of a large university like UConn? Uh, I never had administration as part of my career goals, but I certainly did imagine myself being a faculty member at a place like UConn. Okay. So um, after Carleton College, we know you went on to get your PhD from Harvard in mathematics. Why specifically did you choose mathematics as your field of study? Uh, I wanted to be a mathematician from uh, as early as I can remember. I mean, I remember being interested in in mathematics in second grade. Really? Um, And it was a a career, you know, people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And mm-hmm. I would say, I want to be a mathematician when I grow up. That's very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So uh, it, it was, uh, I mean, at various times, I sort of considered other possibilities, but I always came back to it. Right. Yeah. Did you have like a notion of what a mathematician was at such an early age? Or do you just know, I like math and I'm going to do this in some capacity? I don't think I had a very clear idea, but I, I had sort of, you know, like, a picture of what a professor might be like, mm-hmm. and I thought that would be good. And I, I did read, um, there are some, I read a lot of, the, Isaac Asimov had a whole bunch of books about science, and like they would tell the stories of great scientists and mathematicians, and I remember reading those. I read a lot of science fiction, so I had a kind of a picture of what a scientist was Right, thinking. and so that was engaging for you. That's what yeah. you wanted to do. Yeah, and then also, did you have any family or relatives that, may have influenced you in that direction? Um, Not really. I mean, my my parents, my father is a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's a very erudite person, but um, he always was always worried that if I became a professor that that would be a tough job. And he he would wonder why, for example, didn't want to be a doctor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) um, And I don't have any other uh, professors in my family. Okay. So it was, it was definitely my thing. All right. So you've told us um, that the work you do is even incomprehensible for some mathematicians, right? Uh, we were just wondering if you were able to give us a brief, simplified summary of the work itself or the broader impacts of the work in any capacity. Well, most of my work was in the sub-area of mathematics that's known as number theory, mm-hmm. which is the, in m- many people consider it the oldest branch of mathematics. And you know the or the original questions in the field start with with very simple questions about uh, whole numbers and prime numbers and so forth. So, for example, um, if you take Pythagoras's theorem, where you have a triangle and the sum of the squares of the sides uh, is the square of the length of the hypotenuse, a lot of people know that, for example, there's a three four five triangle mm-hmm. where you have a right triangle whose sides are whole numbers, and as long ago as the time of Euclid, people wondered about which right triangles could have whole number sides. And if you start out by asking that kind of question um, and you sort of follow your nose, you get into questions about which kinds of equations have whole number solutions or integer solutions. And that's the general class of problems that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And another 
very basic question has to do with factoring numbers into their prime factors, which mm -hmm. is something you learn in elementary school. Mm -hmm. But it's very deceptive because when the numbers get large, the methods that you learn in elementary school, even with the best computers that we have, uh, the problem is computationally intractable, which means that no matter how good your computer gets, if you make the numbers bigger, it's always going to be out of reach. So mm -hmm. trying to develop methods to, um, to factor big numbers has been interesting to people for a long time. And in the 70s, it became clear that a lot of the cryptography, which is mm -hmm. used on the internet, for example, um, can it relies on this fact that it's difficult to factor large prime numbers. So there, there be started to be a practical interest in some of this as well. And, and so are there broader impacts of this in, in terms of? Well, I mean, I think you see the impact of research in number theory you see it in cryptography, mm -hmm. you see it in signal processing. Um, the work that I personally did is very far from, well, most of the work that I did is very far from anything with a practical application. I did some work on, um, on computational methods which could be employed if you were trying to, uh, to do some code breaking, for example. Mm -hmm. But even that is, it's a long way from kind of hands-on practical code gotcha. breaking work. Right, right, right. Okay. So we're curious, what exactly brought you to number theory? I mean, obviously understanding the basics is necessary to then be able to use that and extrapolate it to tackle more complex and difficult problems such as that prime number dilemma that you just mentioned. Um, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a mathematician, but even as late as college, I wasn't exactly sure what kind. I mean, I was interested maybe partly because of my interest in science fiction and space travel, I was interested in, um, in general relativity, which, mm -hmm. and I was interested in um, various kinds of, of applied problems, more applied problems related to differential equations, for example. But um, I think like a lot of people, I was very influenced by a professor that I had mm -hmm. in college who, um, well, first of all, you know, I had a good relationship with him. I used to come to his office and talk to him, but um, he started suggesting things for me to read, mm -hmm. and um, that seemed—I mean, it, it seemed interesting—and it was fun to talk to him about it. And in my senior year uh, of college, he he gave me a uh, a project to work on as a kind of research project, mm -hmm. which I spent most of the year working on, and actually sort of didn't get, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount, but I didn't actually make any progress yeah. on the right. on the actual <laughs> problem that he gave me. But um, that sort of made me pretty sure that I wanted to work in number theory, and he suggested uh, who might be a good person to right. work with. Okay. And uh, so that... So it's faculty guidance. And, and yeah. And yeah. Being steered to, in the right direction. To a large somebody. extent, it was a kind of, you know, almost a mentoring. Which effect. is what you need, right? Um, so before we get into, we're actually going to get into mentoring, but before we get there, uh, so for us, for biological sciences, it can be difficult to explain the nuances of foundational principles behind certain things, but people can wrap around their big picture, and like we're talking about now, some of the work you've done doesn't have a direct practical application. Does that, do you find that that motivates you, that you're able to do these things that many people can understand, or does it deter you from, at times, from keep pushing forward that you don't have much to reach out to for support in your work? Um... Well, you know, mathematics is a community, mm -hmm. and um, it it may be a small, you know, it's a small community. The kinds of things I was working on, uh, there are maybe 
I don't know, a thousand people in the world who are interested in, whereas right. if you were, and that as, you know, there are a lot of mathematicians in the United States. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's a very, if you go to the annual meetings of the American Mathematical Society, it's an enormous group of people, but in the particular area that I was interested in, it's, you know, it's a sub area of a sub area, mm -hmm. but it's a closely knit community and it's an international community. Right. So, you know, on a sort of, as a matter of my day-to-day -day life, um, it was really fun mm -hmm. to to work with the people that I knew. I went to conferences all around the world. I would see the same people, plus new people would come, new students. So mm -hmm. I didn't feel cut off in that respect. Okay. And um, it's interesting. You know, that in, in some sense, that's what really... I never... The fact that it was very abstract and far from applications, that didn't bother me at all mm -hmm. yeah. because I actually believe that... Um, in the end, it's that kind of work which pays off in the long run. Okay. So uh, even though I didn't see the particular application of what I was working on, I know that history shows that advances in pure mathematics ultimately do have an right. impact. Yeah. And I just trust to that. Mm -hmm. Sometime in the future, it'll work out. That's a strong belief, right? <laughs> okay. So we know that you completed your PhD under John Tate. Um, we were curious about the relationship with your mentor was? And did you specifically seek him out to pursue your PhD? Because you were saying number theory and you were guided in that direction. Um, and in what way did he provide guidance for you? Because one of the most difficult things students confront when getting involved in research is finding a lab and a mentor to guide them, and, you know, that is suited to their personal interests and their actual needs. So what do you think the most important characteristics for students to look for in an effective mentor-mentee relationship also? So first of all, you know, work in math is quite different from, say, work in biology because mathematicians work very independently. Yeah. So my relationship, I did, when I went to Harvard, I had this faculty member at Carleton, his name is Steve Galovich, mm -hmm. who had said, you know, you should, if you can get in, you should really try to go to Harvard. And if you can get into Harvard, you should really try to work with Tate. Okay. Um, because, I mean, John Tate is uh, probably, I think, one of the great mathematicians of the second part of the 20th century, somebody whose name is on mm -hmm. everything. And not only that, his students um, are the now in the sort of, I'm the, among the youngest of his students. Mm -hmm. He's still alive. He's yeah. in his late 80s. He lives in Boston. But... Um, so as, as one of his students, I'm part of a really elite yeah. group right. <laughs> of people. Um, but my, my relationship with him, it's funny to talk about this, but um, m so I had an unusual situation. But most, I would say most of what the time in graduate school, most of what I learned and most of the interactions on a day-to-day -day basis that I had were with the other graduate students and the postdocs at Harvard. Okay. And... Um, some of them, uh, Robert Coleman, Greg Anderson, there's a whole bunch, and Wayne Raskin, Udi Dishalit, they're still, some of them I'm still in contact with. I learned, they were the people that I kind of worked with on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Tate, um, I took a couple of classes where he was a lecturer, and I did get involved kind of by accident in a research project because I could write code. Okay. and. Tate and another faculty member at Harvard named Barry Mazur had a question which could be answered by a computation. Okay. And they recruited me to write a computer program for them, mm -hmm. which turned out to have very surprising results and led to a publication with okay. co-authors 
Mazer, Barry Mazer, John Tate, and Jeremy Teitelbaum. Mm -hmm. And to this day, that's probably the thing I'm best known for in the field. Mm -hmm. um, it was really very generous of them to include me as a co-author. Mm -hmm. So I worked pretty closely with them in the course of doing that work. But as far as my thesis went, um, well, I, this is sort of facetious, but in certain ways it's true. I, I spent a long time thinking about my thesis problem very independently and talking to other students. And then one day I had like a three-hour conversation with Tate where I explained where I was stuck and what I was doing. And, and he basically gave me three or four pieces of incredibly insightful <laughs> advice. And on the basis of that, I wrote my thesis <laughs> and I finished. So oh, wow. <laughs> I know that some people think about they had weekly meetings with mm -hmm. their advisor yeah. and they went over their work. It was nothing like that. It okay. was much yeah. more um, uh, everybody's, you're, in the, you're on your own, you're talking to other students. And then I had like one really crucial yeah. meeting with Tate and that was <laughs> That's it. That's very interesting. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. um, so going to your work with coding, we know you've done work with bioinformatics genomics. Um, we ourselves have just actually begun learning bioinformatics for RNA sequencing. And, you know, we're learning how to write scripts and then to process large data sets. But a lot of the operations that we're doing are founded upon these complex mathematical algorithms. So we're curious with this in mind, you know, as to what you believe the role of mathematicians and biologists are in processing of these large data sets in this new modern age of biology. So this is something I've gotten interested in recently, and I'm a student in this field. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not an expert. <laughs> okay. um, so I... I mean, I have a, a long, you know, my one talent in some sense, this <laughs> Mazer, Tate, and Teitelbaum thing is kind of an indication of that, is that I, I knew how to write. Mm -hmm. I knew how to, I'm good with computers. I know how to do programming. And at times in my earlier life, I was really an expert on, on system administration and so forth. So recently I wanted to do something that learned something new about what, where mathematics was relevant. And because there was so much talk at the university about genomics, yeah. I'd, and I decided to try to learn some of that. So I was on this, um, there's a website called Rosalind, mm -hmm. which gives you sort of programming assignments. And okay. I did some reading. So I've really just been trying to learn myself some of these issues. Um, you know, I think it's clear that, that um, a lot of the progress in some of these crucial um, questions like um, genome reassembly, for example, have really been driven by advances in algorithms. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was very interesting was that, uh, so for example, one of the problems that you have is you want to um, do partial string matching, right? You want to locate a partial match of a string against a, a big string. That's mm -hmm. something that comes up in genomics. Mm -hmm. And this had been studied very, very heavily long ago by computer scientists in other contexts. Okay. And so, and this is an, sort of an indication of why I believe that basic research ultimately yeah. pays off. So, you know, one, once people realized that these problems they were trying to solve with DNA sequences had really already been thoroughly studied and completely solved back in the 70s by computer scientists who were interested in, um, in search, you know, looking up things in databases and so forth, they could they could pl apply yeah, ready-made work. To me, the really interesting questions that I've looked into, which I don't really understand, but which are very interesting, are the more um, the statistical questions. Mm -hmm. okay. So the one I spent a certain amount of time looking at and I would really like to understand better is the problem of phylogenetic reconstruction, okay. where you want to reconstruct the evolutionary history of an organism from DNA sequences. And there are some real experts on this on the Yukon campus. Yeah. Uh, Paul Lewis is one, Peter okay. Gogarten in the in the sort of 
microbial world is another. And that's a, done by using some really interesting ideas from statistics, but to a mathematician, it's all very odd because um, other scientists, not just biologists, but physicists and other scientists tend to apply mathematical ideas, but they don't actually have any the firm theoretical foundation for why they know that they're getting the right answer. Exactly. And the thing that distinguishes mathematicians from other scientists is that really bothers a mathematician. <laughs> and in fact, early in my graduate school career, I considered being a, a theoretical physicist, but this really bothered me about the, I mean, I mean I'm just not that way. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to get the details right. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting work to be done on sort of rigorous understanding both of the statistical models which are used in this, but also on some of the, um, what are called the Monte Carlo random walk algorithms that are used, and all of which are, they, they're used, they give results, the results pass the kind of scientific reality test that biologists use. Mm -hmm. There's some mathematical justification for them, but there's a huge amount that's left open. And I think there's a lot of interesting mathematical work that could be done there. Yeah, I think we've confronted that yeah. when we've been writing scripts. We're like, we don't know why we're writing this, but we've seen this work before and we are going to use it again sort of thing. So understanding the basics actually might help us. Um, and with that, um, as a mathematician, as well as a, the former dean of CLAS and now the provost, what courses, specifically math-based courses, would you suggest a, someone who's in the field of biology to take in order to prepare themselves for these sort of questions and these fundamentals that they should understand when they go forth in their work? Well, I mean, I think needless to say, everybody needs to know how to how to program. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think that's true of almost in any field. Uh, mm -hmm. You shouldn't leave school without without knowing, for example, how to write a Python script for something or, or whatever the language is of your choice. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting in a way because mathematics Whenever, and whenever people try to bridge the gap between the mathematical literature and the scientific literature, the obstacles are, are formidable. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, to non-mathematicians, the mathematical literature is quite impenetrable. And, to, and oftentimes, the language that scientists use is incomprehensible to mathematicians. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I certainly think that, that all scientists and biologists in particular need to have a really profound understanding about statistics. Yeah. Uh, what to, but to, but there's a, you really see this culture gap coming out in that situation because oftentimes people learn uh, statistical tests and even if they get really good training in how to interpret them, the theory of where those statistical tests come from is really remarkably fascinating and profound and deep, but not easy. Okay. Um, and so there's only so much time in your life. And yeah. one of the mistakes graduate students make is they feel that they have to learn everything before they can actually do any research. I, I don't know if you guys have that problem, but I have that problem. It's yeah. like, well, can I do research now, but I, there's 50,000 things I should still learn. <laughs> So I, I think if I, I don't know the, how to do this, but I think that really the most important thing that people in the sciences need to understand is that many problems which they are wrestling with 
mm-hmm. have already been solved yeah. by mathematicians. <laughs> yeah. If they know how to ask. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, b- finding some mathematicians that you can talk to mm-hmm. and sort of communicating, uh, I think would be good for science generally. And it, it will prevent scientists from reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. And it gives a constant source of new problems for mathematicians to work on. And, you know, when mathematicians solve something, they solve it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's done. And so, um, but oftentimes it's not clear to, to an outsider how to apply what they've done. So rather than gotcha. what courses you take, I think I, should, I would cultivate this frame of mind that, um, that if something starts to seem to you like a mathematical problem, then you should find a mathematician and talk to them right. about it. Because yeah. they've probably encountered it. They may yeah. very yeah. well have. Yeah. Or they can help you at least, mm-hmm. they can help you I mean, there's a math reviews database, for example, which is the complete mathematics literature. Mm-hmm. But you have to know how to ask yeah. in order to understand the answers. So, okay. mm-hmm. so um, shift gears a little bit. We like to ask professors questions that allow students, or you know, provost now, but um, to make faculty and professors and researchers, whatever, seem more accessible and attempt to almost humanize them. So we talked about this a little bit at our meeting a few days ago, but um, what kind of hobbies did, do you have, did you have uh, that you know, you're able to take time off of your research. Uh, well, I have a pretty serious computer gaming hobby. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Uh, very, you know, I, I recently, I would say the best, I played The Witcher 3, if that means mm-hmm. anything to you, which is a, a role-playing game on the Xbox, which I think is a true masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that, you know, I've been doing that since the dawn of computers, even, right. in, <laughs> even in seventh grade. Uh, which was the time the app, I was in seventh grade when the Apple II came out. And oh, wow. um, so we, I've been playing computer games for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I play the guitar and the banjo. Okay. So um, that entertains me quite a bit. Right. I'm, I'm not particularly good, <laughs> but um, I find that it's really impossible to be in a bad mood um, if you're playing the banjo. Right. So, <laughs> And, you know, my wife and I, we like very much like the outdoors. So we try to go hiking and, and go to the beach mm-hmm. and uh, I my kids are grown up at this point mm-hmm. but certainly for a long period of time they kept us quite occupied yeah uh, I've never been a person who can't I, I'm able to get away from work okay. mostly <laughs> <laughs> that's good so these hobbies have helped you maintain a nice balance between work and yeah yeah and, and in lots of different ways okay that's good one of the repeating themes so among students is that they change paths throughout their undergraduate or even further on studies. Um, I know for myself, I was committed, but I know Kyle, he him, he changed I paths. changed my majors at least three times since I came here. And never a, drama- uh, a dramatic shift, but just finding the right path, right? And so you've talked about, you know, you had the interest in theoretical physics. Did you have any other... Uh, Interests, other professions you considered in your undergraduate career? Well, like I said, I, you know, I, I, I'm unusual, I think, in, the, in that I mm-hmm. really wanted, I was very focused on math even right. from a very young age. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other things that I liked. Um, I think I could easily have been a double major in English in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to do the comprehensive exam, so I didn't, <laughs> one comprehensive exam was enough, <laughs> so I didn't, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. pursue that, but, um, I very, you know, I really enjoyed um, t- English classes and right. literature and so forth. And um, and to be, you know, if you look at my career, I mean, I, I, 
I became an administrator, yeah. right? right. <laughs> and uh, that was never part of my plan. And it, you know, I mean, I, I mean, the things that I did and learned and knew as a mathematician were not actually that useful uh, in my role as dean um, or as provost. What really was useful was the the breadth. Of, I had a Carlton gave me a very strong, broad liberal education and. In many ways, that was much more important to my success as dean than all of the work I did in mathematics. I mean, it helped to know, you know, what the what like what faculty members care about, which is remarkably similar across disciplines. But, you know, I I don't know really right. anything about most fields. But I did learn in college about how how broad what a broad education is like, and that that really mattered. Do you think UConn offers the same broad education? Do you have plans to implement to make it a, a larger breadth of coursework for students in order to gain, you know, the opportunity you had at Carleton College? I think that the different, there's no question that UConn offers anything you could possibly want. Right. <laughs> um, it's a big place and students have more freedom than they did at Carleton. Um, there's more things on offer, there's more options, and that has a good side and a bad side. Yeah. I also think that, that the, um, the message that many students many students come to UConn with their parents looking this is at the undergraduate mm -hmm. level mm -hmm. with their parents looking over their shoulder and very focused on you know what what are they going to do that's going to get them a job and to what extent is what they're learning useful and um, I was very fortunate in that that was not I mean okay my parents as I said <laughs> they did ask this question but they they didn't pressure me about it yeah. and I, I always knew that I could get a job in the computer business so I I, I was very realistic with myself that if, if I wasn't going to get if I wasn't going to make progress in the math business I knew that I could get a job as a doing something with computers mm -hmm. so um, I, in that sense I didn't worry about it and I think that actually there is a lesson there which is you know it's good to pursue your dream and it's also good to have some skills right <laughs> yeah um so because this podcast is for both undergraduate and graduate students, um, but just to cater to the undergraduate students, um, if they're looking to get involved in research in any capacity on campus, what advice would you give them? Uh, you just got to talk, talk to the faculty. I think yeah. I, I don't know what I mean. There are certainly, you know, you can go to the uh, there are offices that will help you. With yeah. the the um, There's an office of undergraduate research. You can talk yeah. to them. But um so I think one thing is to take classes about stuff that you're interested in, yeah. and the other thing is to then talk to the faculty. Yeah. There is a certain kind of torture, which is to get involved in a research project about something that you don't really care about. Mm -hmm. um, that can really be agony. Yeah. And so the, you know, it, it helps a lot to figure out what it is you are interested mm -hmm. in. Yeah, okay. And conversely, what advice would you like to share with students like ourselves, just getting involved in research now, you know? Well, one piece of advice is to understand that you will never know enough. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think one of the, so therefore get on with it, you right. know, <laughs> just accept that. It's also true, I think one of the things I had to really learn when I was trying to make progress as a researcher is the ability, and I think this is a professional skill of scientists, and it goes against everything you're supposed to believe, but that is to be able to use results that you don't fully understand, okay. to be able to 
extract enough information from the literature so that you can make progress on the project that you're working on without having to reconstruct the entire chain of mm -hmm. argument that, mm -hmm. that yeah. people have already done. Otherwise, you, so, you know, the way this works in math is that um, you, you find out that you need to know, you all say, geez, if I only knew if this was true, I could solve my problem. And then you do some research in the literature and eventually you find that someone has in fact shown that that's true mm -hmm. and it's published, but maybe you don't exactly understand the yeah. proof. Well, okay, but you should go ahead and use that result and make progress on your project and also try to understand mm -hmm. that result. Yeah. So this notion that you can be a consumer of work which is already done, uh, I think that's something that, that's a professional skill that people have to learn. Right. And I am sure it's true in other fields as well because one mistake that people make is that they, they feel like they have to reconstruct everything that everybody's done before if they mm -hmm. want to use it. And again, the life is too short for that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, that's all the questions we have for you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, we well, Thanks for doing this. So this. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. We really appreciate awesome. it. All right. <laughs> thank you. We want to thank Dr. Jeremy Teitelbaum, the UConn Provost, for taking the time to talk with us today. We appreciate the valuable insights he shared and hope our listeners did as well. Per usual, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or any follow-up questions about our interview with Dr. Teitelbaum. And you can reach us at uconn.pcr at gmail.com. With that, good morning, good evening, or good night, and we hope you tune in to the next episode.